From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we explore what it means to craft a theology for the 21st century for a church that is changing from vertical to horizontal in our conversation with Diana Butler Bass about her new book, Grounded, Finding God in the World, a Spiritual Revolution. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Diana Butler Bass. She's the author of nine books on American religion, including Christianity After Religion, Christianity for the Rest of Us, and A People's History of Christianity. She holds a Ph.D. in Religious Studies from Duke University and has taught at the college and graduate level. She's currently an independent scholar. She has been a columnist for the New York Times Syndicate, and she blogs for the Huffington Post and the Washington Post on issues of religion, spirituality, and culture. We're discussing her new book, Grounded, Finding God in the World, A Spiritual Revolution, which was published by Harper One. Diana Butler-Bass, welcome to Things Not Seen. It's good to be with you, David. Thanks for having me. Well, I want to start our conversation with an image that you begin the book with. Uh, you, you draw a parallel between the labyrinth and the mountaintop. And I'm wondering if we could start there and explore kind of what those two images mean for you and why they were significant for what you're trying to do in this new book. Oh, that episode that I write about happened in Santa Barbara, California at a monastery that I was visiting. And um, it was very powerful because uh, I used to go, when I, when I lived in Santa Barbara years and years ago, I used to visit the monastery quite a bit. And it was a beautiful place. It was very peaceful. I got to be friends with the brothers. It was um, one of those spots where your soul just sort of finds healing and respite. And um, I was through Santa Barbara on a trip, and I went to the monastery. But it was different. Um, and the reason it was different is that the monastery used to be located on the mountains behind Santa Barbara, and now uh, the monks own a property in the city. And you can sit in the middle of the labyrinth and look up and see where the monks used to live. Uh, this was due to the fact that there was a huge fire in Santa Barbara that destroyed the monastery up on the hill. So here I am one, one morning, and I was walking this labyrinth, I was praying, and I was thinking about where the monastery used to be on the mountains and where it is now in the city, and I realized that that was a metaphor in a substantial way for what was happening with Christianity in North America, that we used to be on a mountain of privilege. You know, <laughs> the church was the big, powerful institution in town with influence and covers on Time magazine. And now uh, Christian faith has to live in this context of being in the city uh, with a lot of diversity and a lot of other voices. And it's it's off of the mountain, as it were, and down in the world. 
Well, and you use the phrase, the theologically flattened world. And so what I'm hearing you saying is that there used to be a place for religious faith in the public sphere that was that was in the world but not of the world. But now what I'm hearing is that we really have found that faith is is coming back into should we say lived human experience or what is what is the the right phrase for explaining what faith is doing now in the public sphere well i talk about the the shift what I, and i think this is sort of the fundamental shift of our understanding of theology and church and and it's happening amongst a lot of different religious traditions is that we used to construct the universe in a vertical fashion where there was heaven earth and hell and that god lived in heaven, and essentially the church functioned as a mediating institution between earth and heaven. And the language of theology and the language of hymnody was all vertical language. It was all structured in a very sort of up-and-down fashion. That was, there's nothing new about that, or nothing new to note it, you know, because we've been living with that for a really long time. The idea that everything came in a sort of a ladder fashion down from God. And so this whole vertical structure has been under siege, really, for the last several hundred years. And part of the problem that I think we're facing as people of faith is that the old vertical structured universe no longer works. It doesn't work in science. It doesn't work in philosophy. It's also not working as a theological or ecclesial structure either. And so the question is, well, what's coming in its place? And in in Grounded, I talk about the shift towards the horizons. And I borrow that language quite directly from things like quantum physics, where they talk about the quantum horizon or the cosmic horizon. And I also um, am thinking a lot about sort of the, the beauty of a, of a theological horizon or a spiritual horizon and trying to reorient readers' attention away from the old up-and-down structure towards a structure that is about here, that is things that are intimately close to us and things that are beyond our comprehension that those things that are beyond our comprehension aren't up, but instead they are far off, more like a horizon. Well, even in your choice of words to speak about what you're seeing happening, this this word reorientation, to be oriented is to know where the east is. That's horizontal language. It's it's interesting that you're thinking about this this loss of transcendence in the world that's pulling us towards a sort of a new direction, yeah, and one of the things I'm trying to help people understand is it's not really a loss of the sense of transcendence. It's just a relocation of transcendence. So that instead of transcendence taking us up to heaven or God sort of intervening down in the world, that kind of vertical piece, um, I'm inviting people to think about awe or transcendence as that which is immediately beyond our ability to reach it. Maybe it's not up there. Maybe it's all around us in a really interesting way that is just beyond uh, what we can apprehend. If you're just joining us, we're speaking today with Diana Butler-Bass about her new book, Grounded, Finding God in the World, A Spiritual Revolution, published recently by Harper One. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. So, and I, I get these terms mixed up, so if I, if I use them incorrectly, please feel free to correct me. 
pantheism and panentheism, the notion that, that the world is God or that God in some way inhabits and infuses all aspects of the world. So when I use these words, is that a good description of the reorientation of transcendence from the vertical to the horizontal that you're talking about, or are we talking about something else? Well, in uh, in Grounded, I talk about the three positions that seem to be broadly available to people thinking about God right now. And uh, those three positions are theism, as we've known it, uh, especially Western theism, which maintains a really sharp distinction between God, the creator, and the creation. And then another sort of vision of God that has been available for a very long time, and that is this idea of pantheism. Um, And pantheism is a kind of classic position, and that is everything is God and God is everything. And then there's a third position, and the third position is the, it sounds like pantheism, but it's pan-en-theism. And it's spelled just like pantheism, but you insert a little E-N between the pan and the theism. And what's, what's fascinating to me is over the last 50 years in particular, this middle position is the one that's beginning to be explored a lot more dynamically in even Christian theological circles than it had been at any other time in history. And what panentheism says is that there still is a distinction uh, between the creator and creation, but that the distinction is not vast. Um, Instead, God is with everything, and everything is with God. Um, One of the ways I like to explain it to people, it's, it's a little like understanding God as the artist, and the world as the art. And here, a very simple example would be like looking at a Monet in the, in the museum in Chicago. You go in, you see all those beautiful, beautiful paintings. And um, as soon as you go into a room and you see something by Monet, you go, oh, it's, it's a Monet. And that's because the painting is so completely infused with the spirit of the artist. In a sense, even though Monet is dead, he is with the painting. You recognize it everywhere. But the painting is still not Monet. But there's a, a kind of a mysterious tie that is almost a little bit beyond explanation uh, between the artist and the painting. That, that image of Monet, and Monet is not the painting, but you can tell Monet's paintings. That's such a helpful, clarifying image for what you're trying to explain here. I'm trying not to fall into, you know, people are saying, oh, she's become like a, you know, she's, she's a pagan. I do have friends who are pagan, uh, but that's not my position. Well, and I, I want to push back against that image using uh, the line of thought from a mid-20th century theologian by the name of Karl Barth, who was very, very skeptical of the kind of position that you are discussing here, the notion that we can look to the natural world and see the work of God in the natural world. And and my sense is that you're not going to follow Bart, but how I wonder how you would counter a criticism like Bart's that we should be wary of looking to to the natural world to find evidence of the of the divine. Um, I understand what Bart is saying and I do disagree with him, so you're right to pick that up. Uh, I think that if he were standing in the room, 
I would say to him, well, you know what, uh, Herr Professor Bart, is I think we need to be wary of the ways in which the vision of a distant God has let humanity off the hook way too often and has been the sort of excuse uh, that many people have used to set up violent systems and structures which have oppressed people and have been and, and have propelled great violence in the world. All theological understandings have some shortfall. None of them is, is perfect. And I think we're really struggling right now um, with the kinds of hierarchies that were supported by... Western Christianity over a very long period of time when the church with this up-and-down vertical kind of structure uh, wound up being a partner that has given power and privilege to the few and has diminished the humanity of the many. And, And like I said, Christianity never intended to do that, but I think that the structure and the distance we created between God and the world actually allowed that to happen in some terrible and ironic ways. I'd rather take the risk of seeing God in nature and my neighbor and having that compel me to live in a more compassionate and loving way towards the world than I am to live into an older narrative, which made too great a separation between those things and gave too many people um, a sort of a permission slip to injure uh, both the environment and other human beings in the name of God. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Diana Butler Bass about her new book, Grounded, Finding God in the World, A Spiritual Revolution, published recently by Harper One. We'll be back in a moment. Hey there, listeners. I want to take a moment and tell you about our partner for producing this show, the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. It sounds like an old-timey name, and that's because it's an old-timey organization. They got started in 1908 doing live events here in the Chicago downtown area. In the 1920s, they went coast-to-coast on the radio, and in the 1950s, they started out as one of the first religious television programs anywhere ever. And they're still doing radio and television. In addition to co-producing this program, the Sunday Evening Club makes regular hour-long documentaries for PBS that focus on issues like violence, immigration reform, health care, and more, highlighting the good work being done by faith communities as they try to make these situations better for the people of Chicago. You can find out more about the Sunday Evening Club and watch and listen to all the programs they've been producing for more than 70 years at their website, csec.org. That's csec. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Diana Butler Bass. She's the author of nine books on American religion, and her most recent one is called Grounded, Finding God in the World, A Spiritual Revolution. Now, before the break, you were mentioning that you would push back against a criticism like Karl Barth's by saying that the fruits of Christianity in its traditional sense in the West have led to hierarchy and differences in power which should be critiqued. And and you, you said that this was tied in some ways to the vision of a distant God. And in the book, you, you have a wonderful phrase that you say, you cannot revive a God for a world that no longer exists. 
And if we look, for example, at the research work of, of the Pew Research Center recently on, on American religious life, we see that particularly American populations have been in real turmoil around their religious identity. They they have moved from one identity to another, a great majority of them have, and then there's a rising number of what we might call the nuns, and I don't mean by that uh, Catholic sisters, but instead those that profess no faith at all but still might have some kind of basic spirituality. So when you're talking about this world that no longer exists, are you taking into account these major demographic shifts that we're seeing in the last quarter century in America? Well, I think that what I was trying to do when I talk about um, reviving a God for a world who no longer that no longer exists, I think that's sort of the primary mission of fundamentalists in a time when that kind of religious identity is eroding. What they're saying is, oh gosh, well what we have to do is we have to get out there and we have to be more forceful. We have to proclaim uh, that God is in heaven and demands our allegiance. And you know, so there's a lot of this attempt, I think, to rebuild the up and down, the idea of a distant God who lives in this far-off place beyond beyond our our experience. Um, and so that is fundamentalism, in my understanding. Um, and what we see, certainly across culture in the United States, is that there is a rejection of that on a large scale. A lot of people who look at those statistics one of the things they like to say is, oh, it's liberal churches that are dying. Well, that's not true. That was true maybe 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, but now it's almost all churches that are losing members. And um, you know, one of the fastest declining denominations in the United States is the Southern Baptist Convention. And over the last uh, 30 years, the Southern Baptist Convention has had a gigantic project of making its church more hierarchical and more dogmatic and more committed to the vision of the old uh, picture of God, and it has literally done nothing uh, to stem the tides of membership loss that they've been having. Um, so I think that there is a real connection between the end of the hierarchical vision of God and those numbers. Those numbers show that people are bailing out um, they're bailing out of all kinds of religious organizations that don't make sense to them. They're bailing out of, of religious organizations that they don't believe in whatever God those religious organizations are, are promoting, and they're you know, trying to figure things out for themselves. I was just reading an article this week. It was about a young evangelical pastor in New York who was a missionary. And the author, it was in the New York Times, and the author quoted um, Randall Balmer, who used to teach at Columbia. I think he teaches at Dartmouth now. And, uh, and Professor Balmer was saying, in American religious history, we have never seen a phenomenon like the numbers we see now with people who are leaving uh, their religious identity aside and who are just launching out in their own sort of spiritual places. And that's true. Uh, I've said that myself and many times. It was nice to see it in print uh, coming from Randall Balmer. Uh, we have never seen this in American religious history, and a lot of us are trying to make sense of it. And in a very real way, that's what I, I'm trying to do in my own book, make sense of that shift in my own life and the world around me. 
Well, earlier in the conversation, you mentioned your esteem for physics and science and that you were drawing metaphors. Uh, you used the phrase the quantum horizon. And just a moment ago, you talked about all the people that are bailing out of traditional religion. Before she passed away last year, uh, my old friend Phyllis Tickle talked oh. a talked a lot so of lovely. oh yes absolutely she she talked a lot about this same the same phenomenon utilizing the the new insights from science and mapping them against the the vast demographic shifts that we were seeing and her theory about this was that we were going through a major tectonic shift in spirituality and that a new type of Christianity was emerging. And she had various words for this. She would sometimes call it emergent, sometimes emergence, sometimes emerging. Does that kind of language resonate for you? Are you are you finding affinity with the emergent, emerging church? Or is, is the project in Grounded pushing in a direction that might be different from that? Well, I had I was friends with Phyllis for years, and a lot of my work um, was done in conversation with her as a mentor, and I have been very influenced by everything that she wrote and just by her as a person. So I would I hope, and what I think would happen is readers who are familiar with Phyllis, who might pick up Grounded, would feel echoes of Phyllis's presence in the book. So so her spirit kind of lives here. Now all that said is I I have always just been I think it must be my my age or kind of um where I don't know I don't know quite where it comes from. I've always been a little skeptical about labels. <laughs> and I, I I think I find myself in a big company with that, you know? Um so I, you know, I'll say that I'm an Episcopalian or that I'm a Democrat or you know, people call me progressive, and I'll go, yeah, 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 I'm all those things. And so when someone says emergence, it's like, huh, yeah, I guess so. So I, I don't really like labels. But what I do think is quite right about the conversation that has been happening around Phyllis and around a lot of other really fine, amazing writers is that they're all sort of reaching to explain what is a, a huge transformation and Anyone who is paying attention uh, knows that what was can be no longer, and what is coming into being is just beginning to be born. And so we're all trying to get our sort of imaginations around this and trying to figure out how in the world does does this connect with um, deep traditions, um, with things we love, with stories about compassion, uh, with the with the gods that we have known, um, how do they move with us, you know, into this new world? And so I think that that whole project is beautiful, and if we want to call it emergence, I'm happy enough with that. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Diana Butler-Bass. She's the author of nine books on American religion, and the most recent one is called Grounded, Finding God in the World, A Spiritual Revolution. It was published recently by Harper One. I love the story that you just told about Phyllis Tickle, and one of the things that leaps out for me from that story is that it's a relational story, and that really undergirds the entirety of what you're trying to argue for in this book as I read it. Um, a, a removal of the hierarchical and the transcendent in the vertical sense and instead to replace it with the transcendent and the, the hospitality of the horizontal, if I can use that phrase. Oh, that's beautiful phrase. It's 
Perfect. And so let's think about that in terms of liturgy. Let's think about that in terms of worship. Uh, For what you see happening and for what you are pushing towards in your vision here in Grounded, how does that actually concretize in terms of worship practices, in terms of liturgical practices? Like, what does that look like for the worshiping believer in 2016, moving into 2017? It mostly means we have a lot of work to do, because much of our liturgy and much of our hymnody is still embedded in the up-and-down framework. And what we're singing and oftentimes what we're praying are at odds with what we are experiencing in the world. And um, this was not a terribly uncomfortable tension for me for a very long time. Because uh, I'm in my mid-50s, and um, I grew up in a world that was still, uh, it was being challenged by new ideas in science and a new sort of idea about political community, and it was starting to be challenged by things like feminism and um, other non-hierarchical sorts of movements of human rights. Um, But I still grew up in a house where it was fairly patriarchal, and I certainly grew up in a church where we worshipped a, a really nice God. I grew up Methodist. And if anything, the Methodist God of the 1950s and 60s was really, really nice. Um, a really nice grandfatherly God in heaven. And we were all perfectly comfortable with that. And it matched our experience of our own grandfathers, you know, if we were lucky. Um, and it matched our experiences of the world. And so church and family and work were all relatively coherent. Now, 50 years later, um, I'm the mom of a teenage daughter, and she can't, she's grown up in the Episcopal Church, which is the church that I came to as an adult and that I love, and she, she loves it too. She still calls herself an Episcopalian, um, but she constantly is telling me how the worship in the church doesn't fit with the, her worldview, with her, with how she understands politics, and with certainly what they've learned in physics and chemistry and biology, and her concerns, she's really involved in environmentalist movements, and so all this stuff for her, church has become kind of the odd, the odd piece. Her family and her sort of social views and her civic experience, those two pieces are coherent. But church kind of just sits there. And what, the thing that she always says, she, she always says, it makes no sense to me. So I began listening to that and realizing that part of the reason it didn't make any sense is that she does not live in that vertical world. And so it was even more than just like the, she found the hymns boring or she wanted guitars in church. That was not what she was complaining about. She was actually complaining that the deep structure of the Episcopal liturgy didn't make any sense to her. And so one of the things we've tried to do as family is sort of find alternative settings and different kinds of hymns and prayers and move a lot of devotional um, activity and sort of spiritual practice activity into our home where we could help to stitch those pieces together better for her. 
so that she could remain Christian, um, even though she was struggling with church. So I think that experience of that incoherence is the experience of a lot of people, and that's what's one of the things that's surely showing up in the polling data, especially for younger Americans. Not so much people my age. We are still living with it. We might feel like it's awkward. We might not love it. We might um, be mad at it sometimes, or sometimes it might even the tension, we might resolve the tension that has developed for us by just saying, oh, gosh, you know, there's a certain kind of nostalgic piece about this that reminds me of my mom or it reminds me of when I was growing up in the 1960s or 1970s. And so I can be comfortable with that nostalgic element of it. Um, So we have ways of navigating that that are not present for people who are under 30. So the the churches need to figure that out. And it's going to be hard. I have no doubt about that. Now, as you were giving your answer, in my in my mind, I, I heard and saw my evangelical listeners recoiling and physically flinching as you said some of those things. That's okay. And, 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 and I, I hear that. <laughs> I want to engage you about that for a minute because basically what, what I'm hearing in your answer is that anyone who would hold to a worldview that, that would demand – that your daughter is is somehow being too much influenced by culture in the world and that it's she that needs to change and not the church, that you would want to dismiss that. Am I hearing that correctly? Um, you know what? I am not a person who wants to dismiss anybody or any worldview um, as irrelevant or unimportant. Um, but what I would say is that it's not my worldview. And it's not my daughter's. And um, I do think that Christian community, uh, this comes from being trained as a historian who has a heavy interest in sociology of religion, is that I have always been of the mind that, you know, theology is always just deeply embedded in culture and um, that the church is always involving itself in a task of living well in the world, you know, not well in the sense that it prospers in the world, but it has to live with a sense of goodness and preaching the good news within the context of the world. So church and culture, to me, are very closely related. So so for me, uh, to talk about the renewal of liturgy or the changing of prayers, to me, this is simply what every generation of Christians have always done all the time. We don't live in the third century. Uh, we don't pray or worship or sing anything like people in the third century did. We don't build buildings like they did. We don't order our churches in the ways that they did. So every single generation of faith has to keep this project going, and that is being Christians in the world, in the world that we have, in the culture in which we live. So I'm not dismissive, but I'm certainly of a different theological spin, and um you know, I would appreciate if they would not dismiss, maybe, uh, my uh, my daughter's sense of of desiring a faith that is deeply and profoundly meaningful in the world in which she lives and moves and has her being and which she is passionate about. This is fascinating to me, and I, I appreciate you taking a moment to talk about this. And I hear clearly that you don't want to dismiss this other perspective. You wish that that perspective was not dismissive of you and your daughter. 
But now I want to I want to ask a question, if I may, about the conversation going on between you and your daughter. You've said that she, her articulation is that is that this makes no sense to her, and so. How do you communicate to her what you see to be the essential pieces of Christianity? What is the gospel that you convey to her, or do you? Oh, uh, gosh, I do all the time. I think that if you had her on the phone, which I feel bad trying to speak for her, um, but um, she would say very clearly, uh, God is love. God loves everyone. We have to love our neighbors. We are called to care for the earth. We have a vocation of, of great meaning and purpose, which is fulfilling to both God's dream for us and to the world, if we carry that out. Um, she, she loves Jesus. We celebrate Christmas and Easter. <laughs> so those are pretty much all the pieces. <laughs> and uh, and uh, we have great and amazing, lively discussions about the uh, parts of Christianity that Christians disagree about. I remember just even six months ago, we were having kind of a barn burner of a discussion around the dining room table about uh, the resurrection and whether it was historical, scientific, metaphorical, narrative. And, you know, here we are, my my husband who grew up a liberal Presbyterian, I who spent so much time in uh, evangelicalism and became an Episcopalian, and then uh, my daughter, who is seven, was then 17, uh, simply trying to figure all this out. And so, so my house is is full all the time of incredibly rich, amazing uh, theological discussion, Christian practice, uh, daily prayers. Um, I, I would hope that my evangelical friends couldn't fault me for those things, even though they might not always like. The answers that I have in those discussions, um, nevertheless, they're here, and I'm raising a daughter who is Christian for the 21st century. If you're just joining us, we're speaking today with Diana Butler-Bass. She's the author of nine books on American religion, and her most recent one is called Grounded, Finding God in the World, a Spiritual Revolution, published recently by Harper One. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We'll be back in a moment. Each week we hear from listeners like you who write in to tell us that they love the show, and a lot of you ask us what you can do to help support us. Well, first of all, thank you for listening. The number one thing you can do to help support us is to tell your friends about the show. That word of mouth is so incredibly important. And if you listen to us through iTunes, there's a second thing you can do. They give you the means to give reviews to the show, and it would be fantastic if you took a moment to write a review for us. I hear five stars are very popular. You can also give us money. Earlier in the show, I mentioned that we worked with the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. So many good things come from that partnership, but one of the best by far is that your donations are tax deductible. You can find out more about supporting us at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com, and at csec.org, the website for the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. Thank you for your support, and thank you, as always, for listening. We really do appreciate it. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Diana Butler-Bass. She's the author of nine books, including Christianity After Religion, Christianity for the Rest of Us, and A People's History of Christianity. We're discussing her most recent book, Grounded, Finding God in the World, A Spiritual Revolution, published recently by Harper One. So, 
I was raised an atheist, and when I was in college, were you really? I was, I was. Oh, well, that's fascinating. When when I was in college, I had a, a sort of a spiritual awakening, and uh, the the first the first real uh, worship home that I found was in a friends meeting, and and I I have a memory of uh, several years after that, I I, I got to be friends with a, a Quaker at my college. And then I went to visit her in North Carolina, and uh, she took me to New Garden Friends Meeting. And out behind New Garden Friends Meeting, there is a graveyard. And I remember feeling a sense of connection when I stood in that graveyard that was uncanny because I, I had never felt spiritually connected to another group of people in my life. And standing in that graveyard, I felt something. Now, when you talk about in, in your book going to Third Haven Quaker Meeting House – it sounded like you had something similar that, for want of a better phrase, grounded you in some of your heritage. And I wonder if you could tell our listeners about that experience. Oh, gosh, I love that story. It was, it was a very profound moment. Um, I wandered into Third Haven Quaker Meeting House, which is in Easton, Maryland, and this was in the summer of 2010. And uh, I, was, I was there with my husband, and it was a summer day. There was no one else on this. It's a huge property that has all these beautiful ancient oak trees and a big, gigantic cemetery. It's surrounded by a very old brick wall. So you kind of feel like when you drive into the property, it's, you're almost like entering another world. But we, we went into the meeting house, and the meeting house dates from 1684. That's the year it was completed. And the meeting itself um, dates from about 15 or 18 years before that time in the late 1660s, 1670. The meeting was founded, but they didn't get around building the building until later. So, so anyway, when my husband and I were there, I just had this really strong reaction to this building. And um, I, I felt like I had been there before, which was crazy because I had never even walked inside of a Quaker meeting house ever in my life. And yet there was something about the building that was resonating with my soul. And uh, we, we stayed in the building for more than an hour read the history pamphlet, you know, discovered, you know, sort of little nooks and crannies of the building. It, it's absolutely beautiful. It has not been substantially touched in any way architecturally since about se- um, 1720. So it's very pristine, and it's um, unique, I think, in American uh, church architecture. So, so anyway, we had this, I had this powerful experience. And so my husband, in the middle of it, turned around to me and said, I can't figure out why you like this building because I always have gone after sort of neo-Gothic sorts of buildings with stained glass windows and incense and flowers and color and all those kinds of things. And here I am in this utterly spare uh, building, and I sensed this palpable presence of God. So, so anyway, I said to my husband, I don't know. I said, I just I kind of feel like I've been here before. And three years later, I was doing um, genealogical research in relationship to the book that became Grounded. And uh, part of that was I was I was trying to think about what grounds me, and I really needed to discover some things about my own family. So I was online, and I had had a constant problem figuring out my mom's genealogy. And her last name was very, very unusual. Um, it's Orm, O-R-E-M. And... Um, she uh, 
she came from a very poor family, so the records weren't very well kept. But I was on Ancestry.com, and they sent me a little notice, and they said that someone had filled in my mother's genealogy. And lo and behold, I went over to the the, the link, and there was my mom and her dad before her and his father before him. And I realized it was the it was the patriarchal line for my mother's father, and it was going back really far. It the it went back through the the 1800s, 1700s, it, the late 1600s, and then finally we got to this this one entry, and it said that the first person who came to the New World, that came to Maryland, um, that was her family, was a fellow by the name of Andrew Orm, and that was the same name as my mom, and he came to um, Maryland sometime around 1670. And then the next entry, it says he was born in Scotland in the 1650s. And, and then it says the, ne- the next thing it said about him was that he was married in 1678 to a woman named Eleanor Morris, and they were married at the Third Haven Quaker Meeting House in Easton, Maryland. And I almost fainted because I discovered that that, that Quaker Meeting House, that building, uh, was the building that my ancestors uh they helped to build the building. As I later went on and searched out the records and tried to figure out the family history, because um, Eleanor and Andrew were married before the building was built. They were married just by the meeting. And then a few years later, the the building was built. And my ancestor was actually part of the group of men who who built the building. And I was so stunned by this. I had no idea I had any Quaker heritage. I had no idea my family was from Scotland. It, this was all brand new. And it, and when I uh, found out this this whole story, I just kind of laughed because I've always had very Quaker sensibilities. I mean, that's what we're talking about here. Um, you know, it was this idea that God is with us, that we all have a sense of the inner light, things that Karl Barth didn't like. <laughs> so, um, and that most evangelicals don't pay attention to in terms of the tradition. But there I was. Actually, I, I'm a Quaker. Who knew? Um, and uh, and it was just a, a, a delightful moment of finding my own identity more deeply. And uh, and so I, so I write about that and ground it. And then I write about, well, why genealogy? You know, why is that so important? And um, begin to sort of unpack, you know, why genealogy is so present in the scriptures. And and for our, our listeners, the, the structure of the book itself is is sort of following the structure of this conversation. It, it starts... It starts in a location, and then it begins to radiate out and radiate out into into metaphors and images that that encompass geography and temporality in sort of ever increasing circles. If I can use that that kind of that kind of notion, I like the way you say that, actually, David. And it, it goes to the point we were making before, you know, about Bart and kind of theological method, is that I I trust my own eyes. Um, throughout the book, and one of the things I'm trying to do is to see more broadly and to see more deeply, you know, into the world that is all around me, and let that, in a sense, take me into a sort of deeper, um, more lively sense of of the presence of God um, that really dwells all around us. So, um, So I'm actually not telling people about theology. Instead, I'm creating an experience of what I'm trying to explain uh, 
through my own life, through my own uh, sort of being in the world. So it's it's a very different book in that way. You know, it's it, it's not intended as a sort of a textbook, but what it is is intended to help readers connect with an experience that I think the world is going through right now. Well, I was very struck by this when I was reading it. The language of the book is very much the language of spiritual memoir. So it reads in some ways like if you pull down a, a book from the shelf by Anne Lamott or something like that. But it's also dealing with these 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 heavy theological questions at the same time. And I wonder, in terms of structuring the book, how difficult was it for you to try and strike that balance between a personal voice and, and this kind of going deep into these, into these areas of, of theological reflection? Well, since this is the ninth thing that I've, I've published in book form, I, I've actually, I think, developed a, a particular voice in spirituality, theology, religious studies, and that is this this unusual mixture of of personal narrative or memoir, um, of data. It's also a very data driven book, which is is something people never cease to be amazed how much I like data. Um, uh, data, so sociological observation, and then um, theology. Uh, so. Those three things are present in all of my books. What is different is the mix of them. So I can actually go back through my own books and see, oh, well, this one's a bit more about you know church history or theology, and this one's a bit more about data. This one is more about memoirs. Um, and I think what I was trying to do in Grounded, I, I was pretty self-conscious about it. It's a little, I, I keep telling my friends that I wanted to bring out my inner Annie Dillard. And uh, maybe it just is, where I sort of am in, in my own timeline, is that I wanted to write something that was really beautiful. And um, if I was talking about God in the world, which is about the most beautiful thing I can think about, I darn well better be using the most beautiful language and the most sort of you know subtle and amazing sort of literary style to try to draw people to that same location. And so I really tried um, with that to be a, a writer that elevated um, ex- that literary moment as the place where people, it's an artistic moment where place, people can feel God. So I challenged myself to do that, and um, I, I certainly can be better at it. I, it's the direction I want to keep pushing myself for the next decade. Uh, but if I achieved it in some ways in this book, which I think I did, I'm, I'm pretty proud of, of where this landed. And I felt like I grew as a writer, and I, I, I wanted to. And so I, it was very rewarding. You make the observation in the book that uh, the personal, the mystical, the immediate, and the intimate, that, that those four categories are emerging as the dominant way of engaging the divine in, in the present world. And that's a very individualized way of approaching religion. The thing that strikes me about about the peace with the Religious Society of Friends, the Quakers, is that the Quakers were clear that even though we're talking about an individualized mystical experience, you never go there alone. Uh, the, the Quakers built in real strong communal banks against lone wolves sort of having uh, a mystical experience and then running off uh, half-cocked 
with with some sort of prophetic vision. They would always say you need to bring it back to the community and season it. Mm-hmm. And, and and what strikes me about what you were just saying about the way that you chose to structure this book is that you're trying to create, if I if if I'm hearing you correctly, a shared mystical experience, a subtle, beautiful way of talking about God that is not simply idiosyncratic to you, but is in some way shared and communicated. Uh, but that's that's a tricky thing to do. But I, I hear that that's that that's where you were trying to go with that. Am I hearing that correctly? Um, I would not have said that before you did, but I think that is a good way of understanding what I did, what I was trying to do. Because one of the things that you just said is that um, I'm as concerned with individualism as anybody else is. And what I wasn't doing in Grounded was sort of extolling this sort of shift towards what I might call kind of radical individualism. But what I do care about very deeply is that faith is personal. And I think there is a, a, a profound difference between talking about individualized, you know, sort of spiritual ad hocness, as you were, as it were, and a, a an awareness of a deeply personal sense of God, and that it matters to me as a person, and it matters to the other persons who are immediately around me. And so we kind of throw this word individualism around, um, and oftentimes, and I did not hear this from you, but I have heard it from people who are very critical of contemporary spirituality. Um, they say, oh, that's just individualism. And I'm going, hmm, well, you know, I've actually experienced some pretty nasty forms of individualism in churches uh, where, you know, people in a, a big you know, fight in a church will say, I'm going to take all my money away unless you play only the hymns I like, you know, or uh, unless you fire the youth minister, I'm going to leave and I'm going to take all my friends with me, you know. And so um, individualism is just a problem, and it's a problem in churches, it's a problem in, in neighborhoods, it's a problem online, it's a problem in our spiritual lives. But to have something be personal and to be personally transformative and to to reshape our convictions in a a way that is personally powerful and helps us claim agency, well, that's a different thing. And um, what I was hoping would happen here is that I, I could offer some language which would connect people as persons to one another and to recognize that they they're not alone that there is this thing that is going on and that it is valuable and it is beautiful and that it can actually create community. Um, And so, yes, I am not trying to promote individualism, but I am trying to help people claim the deeply personal dimensions of faith and then to understand that those deeply personal connections exist within a community of other persons. Well, Diana Butler-Bass, I have so enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you for taking the time to be with us. Oh, this was great. A little edgy at times. Uh, I hope it didn't sound offensive about raising my daughter as a Christian. You know, sometimes people come after me a little bit about, um, you know, that I'm too liberal or whatever it is. But I, I, I wish people really were just aware, you know, that uh, I, my, my heart is so shaped by these things. And I have worked uh, a lifetime 
uh, to try to help the people that I love, you know, most dearly, my friends and my family, uh, come into a more profound sense of, of God with them and of the Christian story. And that I think it's the these stories, I think the love of Jesus and the and a, a deep experience of the God of Abraham and Sarah. I think that I, this is one of the paths of healing for the world. And it it's so matters. It really matters. And I'm always trying to communicate that when I'm speaking or when I'm writing. Well, thank you again. Thank you. Diana Butler-Bass is the author of nine books on American religion, including Christianity After Religion, Christianity for the Rest of Us, and A People's History of Christianity. She holds a Ph.D. in Religious Studies from Duke University, and she's taught at the college and graduate level. She's currently working as an independent scholar. She's been a columnist for the New York Times Syndicate, and she blogs for the Huffington Post and the Washington Post on issues of religion, spirituality, and culture. We've been discussing her new book, Grounded, Finding God in the World, A Spiritual Revolution, published recently by Harper One. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC, with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. David Dalt engineered the show. Kim Tron and David Dalt did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenock. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebook.com slash things not seen radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and learn more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.